Naomi Catron, former breastfeeding and perinatal health dud, turned into labor and delivery nurse and CEO and founder of a busy private lactation practice. Not very long ago, I lacked the skills, knowledge, confidence, and perspective to effectively care for families who desired to provide breast milk to their babies. And after spending lots of time, money, and heartache learning the most effective ways to support breastfeeding families, I decided I wanted to help other perinatal professionals and parents skip some of the heartache and feelings of uncertainty or insecurity and instead transform them into confident, equipped, and thriving providers and families. So I made the Birth, Babies, and Boob Business podcast, where I bring together my background as a labor and delivery nurse and a board-certified lactation consultant. On this podcast, I pull back the curtain and share little-known facts from across the perinatal profession in an effort to create more confident and collaborative professionals and families. Because let's face it, we are surrounded by a sea of information, but it's not always the right information for every situation. So if you want to step up your lactation knowledge and gain simple, actionable, and effective tools to improve breastfeeding success while helping to nurture and nourish future generations, then this is the place for you. So let's get started. Today, we have a really juicy episode. We have the pleasure of having Laura Wilson on the podcast, and she is a national speaker. She's done TEDx Talks. Um, She has spoken for the United States Lactation Consulting Association. She has talked uh, on stages in front of doctors. She has spoken for just very a vast number of national organizations um, because she is so gifted in her speaking ability and her ability to really digest research to help us come up with, uh, to help us be able to make informed choices as parents. Um, and so today we're really going to kind of discuss the conundrum that she calls it in her, her webinar, the cannabis conundrum uh, in regards to pregnancy and breastfeeding and cannabis use. Um, I do want to be really clear that this episode is not ever to substitute medical advice and it is never ever um, condoning or recommending the use of an illegal product such as cannabis where can, you know, cannabis can be it's illegal in many places but, but this is really a discussion um, providing information as to like we discuss everything from the difference between risk reduction to harm reduction that's really important if you're a doula or a lactation consultant or any kind of medical provider Um, we talk about what the research now is stating about what we know about cannabis use compared to maybe the older research, which is how hospitals make their policies now. We also discuss some of the socioeconomic things and something you probably don't even think about is sourcing the cannabis and how important that might be. So lots of juicy things to get into today. Um, I just do want to highlight how amazing of a speaker um, she is. And, you know, she really just kind of prides herself in translating perinatal evidence in a fun and fascinating way. And that is her tagline. She is an author, international speaker, pregnancy and lactation expert. She has served on the board for the United States Breastfeeding Committee. Um, She's served on the board of Kappa, if you're a doula. Um, And so she is just an extraordinarily gifted, 
speaker and researcher and teacher. So let's jump in because this is super juicy and a very special treat. Thank you so much, Laurel, for being with us today on the show. Um, if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I have been in the perinatal field for about 30 years ago, and I I really got introduced to it with the challenging birth and lactation experiences that I had with both of my children. And I realized that I just wanted to be a better advocate for families who were, you know, having having babies and making sure that they had access to the information that they wanted and the support that they needed. And over over the years, I developed quite a passion for lactation specifically and um, have really honed my um, my interest and my experience on kind of translating research for professionals that are working in in birth and postpartum and and lactation. So so that's what I primarily do today. And some of the things that I'm so fascinated by today are things like the epigenome and the microbiome and the long-term impact of um, species-specific milk on on babies. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's a little bit about me. <laughs> that is, I mean, you're very humble. You have a, a lot of letters behind your name. So <laughs> BS with a little C, IBCLC, RLC, CLE. CLD, CCCE, and PPPI. Um, would you mind briefly, because I have this episode coming out called Alphabet Soup. So you have a lot of letters. Would you mind briefly kind of sharing what they mean? <laughs> sure. So I'm an international board certified lactation consultant. I'm a registered lactation consultant. I'm a pre and postpartum fitness, um, fitness instructor, certified lactation educator, certified childbirth educator, certified labor doula. Um, I have some other certifications that I don't that okay. I don't put on there. Those are kind of the the main things that I focus on um, using on a sort of daily basis within my practice. So Got yeah, it. I don't I don't do as much prenatal yoga instruction or anything as I used to back in the day. I, I used to focus a lot more on working directly with um, parents and babies, and now my focus really is in working with professionals who support those families translating research. Got it. You also served as a senior advisor for CAPA, um, mm-hmm. being on their advisory board for also Enjoy Health and Kindred Media. So like I said, you're super humble, um, but you do bring a lot to the table, and I've learned so much from you, and I've taken two I did a class that you did on the astrobolome, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. And then I did your class just recently called the uh, Cannabis Conundrum webinar, which I'll put the link into our show notes. Um, but I think maybe first I appreciated when you started off your talk on the Cannabis Conundrum that you prefaced your talk saying, I am not an advocate for marijuana use, but you wanted to share the the newer research that's come out because we have been making policy based on research from cannabis from many, many years ago. Would you mind maybe chatting about that old research versus new research and kind of like your statement that you usually kind of start off with? Because I think it is important to know that we're trying to be as fair and balanced as we can in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I I think... So I come, I live in Colorado and in Colorado, we were the very first state to fully legalize cannabis. And 
And that meant that all of a sudden, many of us who were supporting families throughout the perinatal process were finding that we were having to have conversations about a a topic where there was not a lot of research. And so being someone who loves research, I took that opportunity to really dive into the research that we currently did have and tried to extrapolate what that meant for families. And And I think because I have been talking about cannabis and the potential impact on the family um, from a variety of different aspects that people often assume that because I speak about it a lot Mm. that I am a cannabis activist. I'm not a cannabis activist. Um, I'm simply someone who wants to ensure that if families are utilizing cannabis for their family medicine um, or for recreational use or whatever reason they're using it, that they have the information they need to make um, to make those decisions with an internal wisdom. Um, so what I am is a family advocate. So I make sure that families always have access to what they need in terms of information. How do they find it? How do they interpret it? Um, How does it apply to them? The other thing that I think it's important for us to discuss before we even jump like fully into what the research says is that this is such an emerging field because the use of cannabis um, in sort of a legal realm has exploded really within sort of half of a decade, um, five to 10 years, really. We now are seeing that we finally do have some emerging research, but it also means that there is this, this microscope now on cannabis and all the ways it can impact an individual's health. And so new information is coming out all the time. So even what you and I talk mm-hmm. about here today could be irrelevant in two months from now as new information comes out. So it's just something to make sure that you're always kind of paying attention to what what is the latest and greatest. And the other thing I also want to make sure that all of your listeners pay attention to is to read beyond the tagline that the media puts out there. Because in the past three years, we've had some, we've had some really impressive lactation and cannabis research come out. And the headlines were terrifying. Mm. And the headlines were not representative of what the research actually showed. And so that's the other thing I want to make sure is, yeah, use those headlines to know something new is out there. But get access to the actual document. Read the actual research. Got it. That's really important. Um, One thing that was very helpful for me since I have a nursing background and, Mm -hmm. you know, what I have been told or what I, you know, I I feel like I was one of those people repeating some of the things that you mentioned in your class. Um, Maybe not Mm -hmm. to the extent of like, oh, you're like if a baby comes up positive for marijuana, that must mean your baby Mm -hmm. is high right now. So thankfully I knew better than to repeat something like that. But there was some information just saying that, you know, marijuana could appear or cannabis could appear something like sevenfold in your baby if you were to consume it. So would you mind maybe chatting a little bit about why or why not that statement might be true or false and where did it come from? Yeah, so we we commonly call that the eight to one myth, right? So essentially back in 1982, there was um, a Perez Reyes wrote a letter to the editor about 
um, about two two people the that they had who? brought in. The editor the, to the uh, letter of the editor to JAMA. To okay, the Journal, Journal of America. Yeah. Of, yeah, Journal of American Medical Association. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and essentially, you know, wanted to, they wanted to look at someone who they considered was a heavy cannabis user and somebody who was a light cannabis user. And so what they did was, you know, those individuals utilized cannabis and then they drew their blood and they tested for the THC levels, and they also at the same time um, looked at the milk. And what we know now, after seeing some of the studies, like the pretty recent study that was done by um, Baker and Hale, is we know that for after use of cannabis, inhaled use, and that was what was happening with this letter to the editor back in 1982, after inhaled use, that THC goes rapidly up in the blood within about eight to 10 minutes. And then we start to see a pretty rapid decline after about 20 minutes of THC in the blood as other metabolites are, are raising because we have it being processed in the blood, right? Um, but what happens in the milk is that it takes almost an hour for THC to peak in the milk, and then it starts to diminish very quickly until at about four hours, we see very little amounts of THC after after inhalation. So what we assume happened with this particular letter to the editor was that after they smoked and we had and THC went up, by the time they were able to actually test the blood, and then look at the milk, we were at this moment of time where milk levels are high, but blood levels are low. Had they looked 10 minutes earlier oh. or 30 minutes later, we would have had a completely different experience. So you can't say serum levels are eight to one because it's all about timing. Did you do it at 10 minutes after smoking, 30 minutes after smoking, one hour, four hours? Because those things mean different um, have different meanings when we look at talking about blood serum or um, milk. milk. So, it, yeah. To simplify it, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, those sure. blood samples could have been taken. A person could have inhaled, used marijuana. They could have taken the blood samples an hour later, and then the the milk samples at the same time. Is that right? right. Or, and then mm-hmm. there would have been a high volume of THC in the breast milk, but a lower volume in the blood only because of the time in absorbability that is different between the blood and the the breast milk. Or I shouldn't say absorbability because it's more like pass through at what rate the THC passes through from the blood to the breast milk. It's just a different, the max peak is a different time. It's later than it would be for, for blood. Yeah, so when someone inhales cannabis, the metabolism of THC is fast, 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 fast. But in the milk, it takes longer. You know, what what we know from very, very limited research (laughs) in terms of Mm -hmm. lactation, um, what we know is that it, you know, from 
the high point tends to be somewhere between one to two hours as opposed to 20 minutes in blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it tends to be relatively diminished by about four hours, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the milk, whereas, you know, it's pretty much diminished after about an hour in the blood. So depending on when you're looking, sure. if you're looking at both of those things at the same time, the serum concentration level is going to vary significantly right. over that timeline of, a, of, you know, four hours. The other thing is that this was in 1982. <laughs> So we're talking is very more different. than 20 years yeah. ago, right? We're talking two people. We're talking using forms of cannabis that we don't even have available today. Because if someone goes to a rec center today, you are getting much different concentrations of THC than we did back then. And it was a letter to the editor. It wasn't even a peer-reviewed study. Got and it. yet that is what sort of everybody used for years and years and years to base policy on, which is, it's inappropriate. It's completely inappropriate to make policy based on a letter, a letter to the editor for two, uh, two case studies. So, but at the time, it was really all they had. Would you say that it is accurate to say that marijuana today, if you were to go to a dispensary, is that the right place that you would go? Okay. Mm-hmm. To a dispensary is much more concentrated than maybe illegal street marijuana from the 80s? So uh, the concentrations have have increased significantly over time. So when we look at sort of um, what you would call... Um, uh, when when they go to a raid mm-hmm. and, you know, they, they gather the cannabis from a raid that back back in like the 19, 1980s, we were talking incredibly, incredibly low concentrations. So somewhere between, um, you know, somewhere between like one and three percent. And now back in 2015, you can see concentrations between 15 and 18 percent THC in, in those those rates. So that tells us that okay. the concentrations are incredibly different now. Okay. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is what somebody who is using cannabis is is getting because they may be growing their own cannabis at home and they may have um a botanical blend that has a lower level of THC. They may be using a concentrate. They may, I mean, all of these things are going to change the concentrate amount that they are exposing themselves to based on how they're using it. The other issue is that what Dr. Hale often says is that even though the um, concentration of THC was much, much lower, you know, back in the day, say 1970s, 1980s, versus the concentration today, um, he found that the patterns of use, his belief is that the patterns of use is that back, you know, back in the 1980s, whatever, when somebody would would smoke cannabis, they would smoke almost an entire joint, right? So they were getting a significant amount of THC over that period of time. Whereas today, because people are using these concentrations, they're, they're good with one hit, right? Mm. They're not smoking an entire... Um, you know, an entire joint, an entire, you know, whatever they're using, they're, they're just taking one or two hits. So we don't know what that really ultimately means to the access to the baby if somebody is, is sure. pregnant. Um, but it's just something to think about, sure. you know, even though it's higher concentrations, usage differs now. Yeah, I guess. And it's very individual. Maybe right. someone who's a high right. marijuana user, user does actually smoke a full portion and maybe someone who's just using it to, help with anxiety for an occasional or acute situation. 
Um, perhaps their use looks totally different, but that's why it's so hard to make any kind of conclusions. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next point is, well, first, maybe you can tell people who don't know, who is Dr. Hale and why is his name even important? Yeah, Dr. Thomas Hale is wonderful. He is um he is a pharmacist who has, he has written what we all consider the Bible of medications and, mm-hmm. um, and human milk. So his, uh, book is called Medications and Mother's Milk. And it has been around as long as I've been a lactation consultant. And essentially he and his team review so many different types of pharmaceuticals, herbs, um, and other, um, other things that can, you know, access milk and basically tell us what the lactation safety levels are between an L1 and an L5. So he's considered just kind of this, um, kind of a guru when it comes to medications and, and milk. Um, so he's, he's someone that you absolutely should be following and paying attention. If, you know, if you are working with a family who is using any sort of medication or, or herb during their, their pregnancy and lactation, he also has, not only does he publish a book and he just published the most recent one. Um, he, you know, he updates it about every two years, but they also have an app, which is called the infant risk app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, you can look up medications. And then there's the Infant Risk Center that's actually, isn't it right here yes. at Texas Tech? Because I'm in Texas. It is in, yes, it is in Texas. And that's that's where his research is housed. Yes. Got it. Um, so his latest research, if I, if I am learning correctly from the class that you did, is is not really the kind of research that you would use to make a statement like, this is safe to use or not safe to use in pregnancy right. and lactation. It had a lot more to do with the bioavailability of THC and its metabolites in blood and in lactation based on the timing. Is that correct? So currently, um, so Teresa Baker and Thomas Hale did a um, did a research study simply looking at milk. So they weren't looking at blood serum levels at all. They only looked at milk, no. and they were anonymous donors. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's all we know from their study is the concentration of THC in milk after the use of a very specific type of cannabis over a very specific amount of time. That's what we have from their and dosage. Their sp- research um, and their dosage yeah mm-hmm. so they they selected the type of cannabis um, how it was used and over what time period it was used and then they had the individuals who were using pump at 20 minutes at one hour at two hours at you know at four hours and they measured the amount of THC that was that was in the milk so that's the information we have from that they did not um, have blood draws from the parents and they also did not have blood draws from the baby either. Okay. So we don't really know about blood serum levels on either of those um, okay. those areas. Yeah. And that was in 2022. Is that correct? That study? That was his study, actually. No, it was. Let me look that up. There was two big studies that you talked about in your cannabis conundrum class. And they were more recent, like in the 20s, like 2020s, compared to 1982. Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking his last study, the the Baker and Hale, was actually in 2019. That's when I think it was. Okay. Um. Yeah. yeah. Great. So then that brings me to um something else that I love that you said in your class, which was discussing the difference between 
risk reduction and harm reduction. So those of us who are listening, who are counseling clients or patients, um, clearly this episode is not to say this is safe to use or not safe to use. I don't think there's enough research there to make any claim. Um, right. But, but tell us the difference between risk reduction and harm reduction. Yeah, so the concept of risk reduction is something that has been used in the perinatal space for a long time. And the idea of risk reduction is that you're removing all potential risk from a parent and child. And we know from, you know, back in the 1990s when... Um, when they were focused, when researchers and perinatal specialists were really focused on the potential harm that could be happening from babies who were exposed to um, crack, that risk reduction was the focus. Like, let's let's get rid of all risk, basically um, demand the total cessation of all drug use because that is going to eliminate all risk. What we know from that kind of practice is that it, it doesn't work. It's ineffective and it's actually harmful to families. And so what we now look at, so there is something called the Harm Reduction Coalition. And the Harm Reduction Coalition basically has this way of working with families where you provide as a care provider, non-judgmental, non-coercive care. It is devoid of paternalism. So you're not sitting there telling somebody what they have to do because we understand that every person has their own agency. Every individual has the right to make decisions for themselves and their family. Um, and we also recognize with harm reduction that anything that's going on within, you know, an individual's use of medication and or you know, drugs and or cannabis is also an herb, right? It's also a, an herbal treatment. Um, we understand that there are intersectoral issues that can be occurring all at once. It's not just all about the drug um, or the medication use. So some of the things that we want to focus on when we're thinking about harm reduction is the fact that we recognize that drug use is a part of the world, that we do live in, and it's complex, it's multidimensional, and the cessation of the drug use is not necessarily the criteria. The criteria is that we want to make sure that families feel supported, that they have the information they need to make the decisions that are going to be best for them and their baby in every moment in time. Um, it also recognizes that there can be very real harm associated with drug use, but it is a much gentler and family-centered, person-centered way of um, of working with families. It's not this finger-pointing, mm -hmm. you know, disciplinarian type of um, care, mm -hmm. you know, which is not something any of us should be doing when mm -hmm. we are providing care for families. But it We're here support providers, right? It does. Yeah. As providers, depending what your style is and maybe where you are in your career, sometimes people get a little burnt out and they're just tired yeah. and they lose the energy to be um, versatile and adjust and adapt. But, um, you know, we, yeah. I see this posture with discussions on <clears throat> sleeping with your baby, <clears throat> excuse me, alcohol use in pregnancy and um, breastfeeding, um, smoking and alcohol use. Um, I was in a labor room and a mom was having some, anyway, there, I've heard all sorts of things about the reason this happened is because you smoke or, you know, blaming someone for a terrible outcome and they shouldn't have, they shouldn't even have a baby because of X, Y, and Z 
things. And um, so this stuff really happens. And I'm not old either. Like this is happening now. Um, mm-hmm. So sleeping with your baby, alcohol use, smoking of cigarettes. Um, so these are all areas that could benefit from learning harm reduction counseling techniques as opposed Mm -hmm. to risk reduction counseling techniques. And then in your class, you did really talk about some examples about that. So if I'm a doula, if I'm a lactation consultant and my client I know is asking me questions about marijuana use because she was using or is using and then she wants to kind of get back to it or she has an acute situation and that really calms her. Maybe would you mind sharing what things maybe I shouldn't, I probably should not say to the patient or to the person and maybe some, like some swaps, like instead of this, you know, there's that book, that dieting book, instead of the, like this, instead of that, like this, something. not that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> what it's called. Not, this, not that. Right. Would you mind doing a little, this, not that maybe? Well, sure. Well, one of the things that I, I, I want to say when we're working with families in this is that we, we want to avoid the perception of trying to persuade somebody into doing something because we now know from, you know, neurologic studies and psychological studies that when somebody is trying to persuade another person that there's automatic re- resistance Let me tell to you, that. I wish someone yes. would have told me that five years ago before I started having teenagers. Okay. <laughs> this is starts totally, early, right? right? And it never goes away. <laughs> no matter how nice and tactful you might be. Have you ever considered, or in my point of view, that doesn't work on teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I think our patients are adults and they're smart and they don't need to feel like you're manipulating them in some sort of subversive kind of a way. Yeah. Yeah, or telling or telling them what to do. I mean, the best thing to do is really a concept called motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. So basically, you simply want to start with open-ended questions with anybody, you know, engage them in conversation. You don't want to be the expert here. They are the expert in their health, their knowledge, and what's going on with them. And so what you want to do is just simply, you know, ask them questions. You can ask them if they have any questions about cannabis use and lactation. You can ask them if they, um, you know, if you know that they're already using cannabis, how are they using it? When are they using it? What form are they using it? You know, do they have any concerns about their use and um, any potential impact on the baby? What do they want to know? You know, so you're just sitting there in a very welcome and opening space, engaging in a conversation. And once they do share information with you, then you want to use some, you know, some reflective listening back with them. So what I'm hearing from you is X, Y, or Z. And they can say, yeah, you got that right. Or no, you're totally off base. That's not what I'm saying to you. You know, just keep, keep going with that conversation. Um, And then you can get to the point where you offer information. You can say, hey, I have some ideas or I have some information that may be helpful for you. Would you like to hear it? Mm. And this is where, which can be frustrating for care providers who know that, you know, there are all these things I want them to know. The parent, if you have created um, this opportunity to have trust occur in a conversation, then often when you say, I have information that could benefit you or your baby, or I have something I may want to share with you. How do you feel about that? If you've created enough trust, then likely they're going to say, yeah, go ahead, share with me. But they still may be to the point of, no, I'm fine. I don't need that information from you. We have to be okay with that. That's part of harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, you know, they may not be there where they want that information from us. And we just have to say, you know, okay, we document, you know, the family did not, did not want to, you know, 
listen, you know, not listen, but did not want to hear information on X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z. Um, but that's really where, you know, where we want to go. The, the biggest thing that I think is important for families to understand when they are using any sort of medication, right? medication or or cannabis, whatever it is, is that we typically tend to think of that there's either you use, you use it, um, you use the substance and um, then you don't breast or chest feed your child or you breast and chest feed your child and you don't use the substance. But there's another pharmacist who gives us this wonderful rainbow of options. His name is Dr. Frank Nice. And um, one of the things he talks about is that there are all sorts of options for families. It's not just you use or you don't use or you feed, you feed your baby or you don't feed your baby human milk, right? You can choose a form of administration that you know is going to be least accessible to the blood supply. So maybe you use, you know, say you're using it for pain, maybe you use a salve instead of inhalation, you know, mm-hmm. maybe use an oral route of um, CBD or maybe use CBD instead of THC, right? So you, there are alternative routes of administration. You also can identify when we know the peak um, drug concentration is in the milk and what we think for smoking is at about one to two hours. So then you just don't feed your baby at one to two hours post inhalation, right? You wait until longer after. So there are all these different levels of options for families or you only use cannabis, um, you know, after your last breast or chest feeding of the day before your baby's longest sleep. Mm-hmm. Right, so that your body has an opportune time to process that. Now, that doesn't mean it completely eliminates um, THC or CBD or CBN or CBG or all of the molecules that are found in cannabis from accessing the milk, but it does mean that you're giving your body some time, some opportunity to detox those right. those um, molecules. Yeah, and and just to be clear, we only have a little bit of new research on inhaled. Cannabis. We don't really have mm-hmm. research on gummies and oral absorption rates. So there's one, only one study. Um, actually, there's two studies now that looked at where uh, essentially people who used cannabis self-reported that they were using cannabis and the type of cannabis that they use. So one of them was a study that was done in the same year as the Hale and Baker study, and that was um, – that was published. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name. I'll I'll get it in just a minute here. Um, but they they did find that some of their participants did use oral um, forms of cannabis, but the majority it was like 65 percent, something around that, were using inhaled cannabis. So it's still the primary form of use, mm-hmm. at least for that particular study. But in terms of how different it is. In terms of the access to the milk from oral to inhaled, we don't have clear information on that. But what we do know when we look at um, studies of blood serum is that the body metabolizes THC very differently when you ingest cannabis than when you inhale it. And partly that's because when you ingest it, your body has to metabolize it through the digestive process. And so many things can change how your body metabolizes it from one, how much fat is in, you know, in that bolus when you take the cannabis in, how much fat is present is going to change how your body metabolizes. Your microbiome is going to change it. Um, The concentration of the product that you're taking in, how much of it you 
um, took your dose. So these things all matter. But what we what we tend to see is that the THC levels in blood serum are significantly lower than inhalation, but they last longer, for hours and hours longer. Okay. What does that mean to to milk serum? We Who don't knows. really know. got it. Okay. Yeah. That's really that's really really helpful. You know, I also thought that something that was really fascinating that I never thought about, and I think as parents we really need to think about is pesticides on your product and how is it um, handled? And then you mentioned something about like, I think there's a lot number. I think if you're in a city or a state that it is legal, you can trace Mm -hmm. back a lot of this information. But can you speak a little bit about that? Because I really don't think, maybe I'm just ignorant because I think of marijuana use as being a teenager and you don't think about like, GMO and like pesticides and the seed to seal. Like, I don't think about that when you're that age, but now as a parent, I mean, we really should be asking about all the things we put in our body and how is it sourced. So can you speak a little bit about that? Cause I don't, I don't really know if that's something we've really thought about. Sure, sure. So that study I was um, just referencing was the pediatric study by Bertrand et al. from 2018, just just in case anyone wants to look it up. Um, Yes, so we now do have to think a lot about pesticides and the things that may be hanging out on cannabis when when we're using and when we're using a product that may access a baby, right? So for example, I live here in Colorado, and the majority of cannabis that is sold in dispensaries is grown in these gigantic warehouses where there is 24-hour lighting and misting devices and no access to, you know, like the outside. Open there's, air. There's no open air. It's all fan-controlled. And so one of the things that happens often is they often have significant issues with mites um, and other very small insects that love these really moist environments. And so they and use pesticides on oh, them. Okay. The other problem is that we've got mold and mildew that grows mm. on these products. The other problem is that we can see yeasts and bacteria that wind up on these products. And so while we, we still don't even have definitive information about the safety of cannabis for a fetus and for a newborn, what we do know is the impact of some of these pesticides, many of these pesticides. And here's the problem. Our federal government still says the cannabis is illegal, right? At least cannabis with THC. Hemp is now legal in the United States, but cannabis with THC is still legal. And so what that means is that the FDA that normally regulates pesticides mm. for crops that are that are ingested into the body, they cannot make rules about what's safe for cannabis because it's illegal. So every state now has created sort of their own guidelines, but as a result, we have kind of have been in this wild west situation where a lot of these growers have been using um, pesticide products that are meant for ornamental plants. And many of these pesticides are, are what we call bad actors. And a lot of them, like the ivermectin and ivermectin um, pesticides, when they are heated, they become neurotoxic. Mm. They damage the brain. And they're and allowed how to be utilized. Used? No, they're not allowed, but we have no federal guidelines, right? Because it's illegal. It's an illegal product. So what was happening here, like in Colorado, is that um, our government started to do, um, you know, drop-ins and just testing the product to see what are they using. You know, and what they found was that in 
In a significant amount of the testing, they found pesticides that were considered bad actors Mm. that were not appropriate in any way, shape and form. And so what we now know is or what you now can get is if you go to a reputable um, dispensary or recreational center on the back of your product, there should be a QR code. If you scan that QR code, it's going to give you the lab results for that particular batch. And it's going to show you um, mold, mildew, yeast, um, mold, mildew, yeast, um, pesticides, and also heavy metals. Because we also see that there are sometimes heavy metals that show up in cannabis depending on how they're grown. Um, So it's another thing to to consider. So it's not just considering, is cannabis safe for my baby? It's what is all the other stuff that's yeah. on my cannabis? I never Do I thought trust about that. my bud tender? Am I using an organic product? Do I actually know where it came from? So these are all things that are really important, particularly when you think that most people who are using cannabis um, during pregnancy or postpartum, they're using it because they believe pharmaceuticals are dangerous for themselves and their babies. Mm. They want a natural, safe green alternative and they believe cannabis is the safest most natural way for them to treat x y and z like headaches or nausea um and yet have they considered all these other potential risks it's just something it's part of the conversation to have with them do do you know have you scanned have you looked at your lab results kind of thing that's i i was really blown away when i heard you say that i never ever thought about that you just think you know marijuana is natural it's from the earth like you don't think to consider all these other things, but so is an apple and that can also be quite dangerous depending where you get it from. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, and we're not inhale because like, you're right. If it's neurotoxins, if those pesticides are activated when heated and we're using them in a heated form, you know, whether it be smoking in a pipe, bong or using um, vaping, yeah. cigarette or whatever, vaping, that can be very, that's you get a little extra something you don't expect. Um, I know that you wanted to discuss that was important is the um, the exposure to baby and pregnancy versus breastfeeding. I know we've talked a lot about breastfeeding. Maybe if you wouldn't mind sharing with us some of your knowledge uh, in, that, in that area. Yeah, so with, with pregnancy, obviously we're looking at a completely different access to the baby. So when somebody is utilizing cannabis, if it gets into the bloodstream, it is going to get through, in general, you know, in general, we're going to see it interacting with the placenta. And so we do know that with THC in particular, it does um, access the placenta and it can access the baby. Now, to what degree? And in what concentration, we don't, we don't know, know a lot about that, right? Because how we know it accesses the baby is that we do see THC waste metabolites found in the cord blood. So that we do know that the waste metabolites are accessing the baby. Is active THC? We don't really know, okay? We don't know. Um, but we do know that um, carboxy THC is accessing um is accessing the the baby and is in the cord blood. In terms of what the majority of the information that we have about pregnancy, most of that comes from animal studies. And there's a lot of problems around this with animal studies. One, because most animals that they do cannabis research on have completely different placentas than humans, completely different placentas than humans. So we can't necessarily say because it happens in mice Mm. or monkeys or whatever it's going to happen in a human because our placentas are different and they allow different amounts of um, medications and herbs and things like that 
to access the baby. Um, but what we do see in animal studies, oh, and the other thing about animal studies is they are using concentrations that humans would never use. Okay. We're talking intense concentrations. And so when these outcomes are happening and they're like, oh my goodness, danger, danger, well, humans would never use that amount of THC. <laughs> okay. I mean, it would it would result in us being flat on the ground all the time. So okay. it's, just, it's one of those things we have to be like, okay, let, but let's be real. But what we do see in those animal studies, which give us some concern, is we see disruption in synaptogenesis in the brain. Mm. We see some disruption in endocannabinoid system. And, and what that means for the layperson endocannabinoid system, your endocannabinoid system is a system that creates balance for all of your organs in your immune system. So when we talk about the endocannabinoid system signaling things, it's basically how the body signals organs to regulate, how your immune system regulates. And you need those to be in balance. You need them to be signaling appropriately. So in, in animal studies during pregnancy, we see there's some disruption in that signaling process. The other big concern is that we see disruptions in um, dopamine, serotonin, and opioid receptors in the fetuses of those animal studies. So this could lead to some potential issues around um, addiction behaviors and also mood disorder. But then when we look at um, when we look at sort of studies around pregnancy and birth outcomes, what we see is that there is a potential, a potential for babies being lower birth weight, potential for them being born preterm, even though we have seen a couple meta-analysis say, actually, when you take out tobacco use, tobacco use we don't yeah. see an increase. Yeah. Because we don't tobacco use rate. has been proven to be linked right. to preterm birth, just for the exactly. record. Exactly. Exactly. And so when you take out that confounder, we don't really see that increase in preterm delivery. But we also see a quite high use of tobacco use with cannabis use, right? Yes. So so it's just it's it's one of those things that confounds some of some of the research, but then on the other side, we also see there is a researcher by the name of Torres et al that actually looks at um, cognitive development for children, and what they have found is that they have not been able to identify through meta analyses that any sort of prenatal cannabis use has led to long term impact on cognitive development of children. So. Uh, so we may be looking at something like there may be some short-term impact, but we aren't seeing long-term impact. Although there's also some studies that show it may impact how children study later on. So the research mm -hmm. is just this cut sort of in a conundrum space right sure. now because we don't know a lot. Sure. And that's a fair, I mean, I think that's fair to say that we don't know a lot. It's very important not to just walk away reading one or two things and saying, okay, it's going to be 100% totally safe or or mm -hmm. it's totally going to um, put your child and put yourself at complete risk, just like like saying something like crack, right? So, right. Uh, and I think that kind of brings me to my next kind of point is that, you know, we we put marijuana and crack cocaine kind of in the same category, right? And there is mm -hmm. this... Um, socioeconomic racial disparity there that we want to touch on. Mm -hmm. um, but in a lot of states, this could, if you say that you have used marijuana during pregnancy, that could open a whole CPS case up on you. And it has already mm -hmm. been proven that women of color and black women in particularly are, yeah. um, 
I want to say they're asked more frequently, they're drug tested more frequently, and they are um, involved with public health system. And many times their children are taken away from them. And marijuana use is clearly not the same as crack cocaine. So I know you do talk about some of that in your class. Would you mind kind of sharing a little bit about whatever you think is appropriate for this episode in regards to this disparity and how we put marijuana in the same category as these other scheduled one drugs? Yeah, so in reference to how much more frequently Black women are referred into the social services system, it's actually 10 times more mm. likely that a, a Black um, birthing parent will be referred into social system, the social system as opposed to a white parent, um, even though the rates of use are the same. Wow. So that is all about racial bias. That is right. absolutely all about racial bias, and it's something that we need to we need to pay attention um, to. So we should kind of say the that other, again: is that the, yeah. the the use the 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 percentage of marijuana use is the same? Is However, the same? However, black women or black families are ten times more likely to be referred over to the social service system because of marijuana use. I just think it's a really important statement to kind of put out there because I'm going to tell you I don't know how many providers realize that their white patients are using marijuana at the same rate that what they they're also less likely to even be asked the question Mm -hmm. yep I know they're you know are are you using cannabis you know they're 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 just not as likely to even ask if they ask if they are um, using cannabis I know that in some states where cannabis is legal even if cannabis shows up on a screen, on a blood screen, unless there are other significant drugs of harm found in um, in their screen, they do nothing. Whereas here in Colorado, in some of our hospital systems, it's a huge deal. Oh, all I'm of in a Texas. sudden, it's a big know, deal. All of a sudden, CPS yeah, is absolutely. called in. So it, it also depends on the attitude of the care provider. It depends on the attitude of your state system. Um, and we're trying to change that here in Colorado. We are actually coming up with clinical guidelines through um, through our state that it has harm reduction at the focus instead of risk reduction, which I'm really proud of them for doing that. But to get back to that Schedule One substance discussion, a Schedule One substance is a substance that the federal government has labeled as a dangerous substance with a high potential for abuse and no valid medical purpose. Now, we know very clearly that cannabis has many valid medical purposes, and that has been proven a multitude of times, the multitude of studies, and even through um, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine that did an exhaustive meta-analysis and found that, in fact, there are very clear clinical indications to use cannabis as part of medical care, right? So just from that alone, it shouldn't be a Schedule One substance. We do know that it there is a rate of abuse for chronic users. It's around 10 to 12%. Those individuals can develop a physical addiction to cannabis. So there there is a relative rate of um, addiction there, but certainly not anywhere near things like heroin and LSD that are also part of Schedule 1 substances. But when we look at sort of the racial history of some of these substances that have been placed in Schedule 1, we see um, herbs herbs and 
plant products, okay, like psilocybin, okay, mm-hmm. which is a substance that is used in many indigenous practices, just like mescaline is used in indigenous practices. It's something that comes from um, peyote, but also cannabis. These are traditional indigenous um herbs that have been used for centuries and they are placed in schedule one when you really look at sort of the history as a means of specifically trying to harm people of color and we need to be aware of this we absolutely need to be aware of this we're seeing a a change occur where now we're seeing you know the legalization of cannabis who is this benefiting primarily white populations it's still um you know we're still seeing criminalization of black black um, families who are have some intersectoral use of cannabis today even with legalization so we still are coming from this space of significant harm and it's something we also have to be very aware of when we are providing counsel. And you also have to identify also what it really means for you to be someone who has to report. Okay. So get to know your your state's legal um, focus because it, it may change how you have conversations with families and what you ask. Mm, that's a good point. That's a very mm-hmm. good point. I've learned so much, even after taking your class. I highly <laughs> encourage everyone to con- con- check out um, Laurel's uh, webinar, um, The Cannabis Conundrum. I'm going to put those, the link to your class in the show notes and then a lot of information about your background and how to get in contact with you. Um, also, in your class, you give us this resource, I think, from the American— or, the Can- Canadian Nursing Association about harm reduction. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and put that in there. Um, and I, I don't know that I'm going to cite all of the studies that we did. I think people can look them up based on their names or take your class and learn a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. But this is definitely an ever-changing and a quickly-changing field. So the content that's mm-hmm. in today's episode very well could be obsolete or change in six months from now. Um, but I I think the things that are not obsolete and will not change is the disparity and the discrimination that comes with that. And then the need to really talk with our clients in a harm reduction manner, as opposed to this risk reduction and this paternal type finger pointing way. Like those things are universal. Mm -hmm. They're going to be timeless. Um, And to always just continue having a learner's heart. I'm always impressed with people who've been in the field for a while, but are dedicated to staying they're like um lifetime learners and they're they you you know like I really respect you for wanting to share this information and this is how you debunk those myths and really help to make to move the needle it's like one small step at a time but you're doing the work you're part of the solution not part of the problem and very few people can really be put in that category so I really appreciate you and just even taking the time to be here is is a it's very impactful as what else, you know, what I really believe. Oh, well, I, I thank you so much for having me here. I thank you for the work that you do with families and, and, you know, creating this dialogue through your podcast to bring up really important subjects and discussions for, for families. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate, I appreciate you. <laughs> definitely, definitely advise people to follow 
Laurel and the classes that she takes, they're, they're like no other classes you'll take anywhere else. <laughs> they really are. They're very um, in-depth, cutting edge, um, relevant, new. Um, I had to pay, I have major ADD, so I have to do, like I do like 10 things at one time, but not taking your class. I'm like, oh, I have to pay attention to just this one thing. And even still, I had questions, um, but because it's so in-depth and just very um, meaty. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To learn more about newborn feeding and get your free swipe file, visit milkdiva.com forward slash newborn feeding. And if you've ever said, wow, I wish I would have known that while you're listening to this podcast, then help a friend out and share this podcast with them. You can also help us by leaving us a rating so more people can benefit from finding this podcast. Medical disclaimer. Please know that all opinions expressed on this podcast are solely my own and not intended to substitute the advice of a medical provider. I am not a medical doctor and all information shared is intended for your general knowledge and is geared towards full-term healthy singleton infants and healthy low-risk pregnant or postpartum women.